Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Nerily Meadows is back. Speaking of podcasts where somebody has their name in the pun title of their podcast, her podcast is called Ordinarily Speaking and I highly recommend it. If you like this podcast, I think you will really enjoy Ordinarily Speaking. Uh, she speaks to sports people. Her background is sports journalism, of course, as we'll talk about in this conversation today. We'll talk about quarantine, but we're also going to talk about her losing her job as a sports journalist and losing it as a, in a very public way and how she dealt with all that. And I just think there's a lot of insights in what Nerily went through at the end of last year that are very relevant to people who are going through very similar things right now. So this, I was I was already looking forward to, to having a catch up with Nerily, but because I'd been enjoying her podcast so much and I, I wanted to talk to her about all the conversations she was having. But she came on and also told us a lot about herself and what she'd been going through. So I really love this episode and I hope you're going to enjoy it too. If you have not heard Nerily before, go back and listen to the original episode because that's what I'm doing right now as I'm catching up with people who have previously been on the podcast before and seeing uh, how their world has changed, if their world has changed, what's been going on with them. Uh, Nerily's podcast, Ordinarily Speaking, she speaks to sports people about... uh, well, big moments in their life, and not just big moments in their career, but you know, adversity that they had to overcome and how they overcame it and what they were doing at the time and how it all felt at the time. I think if you like this, you really like that, particularly if you're into sport, but I don't think that you need to be into sport to enjoy the conversations she's having on her podcast. So that's my personal recommendation. I've really been enjoying it, and I hope you will too. Uh, this podcast, Philosophy, well, we have a Patreon, so P-A-T-R-E-R. O-N, Patreon. Uh, I was recommended by somebody on Patreon that I should spell Patreon because it was hard for them to find the Patreon because I did not spell it. I spelt Willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. So uh, patreon.com slash Willosophy. I've noticed a whole bunch of people have joined up. Even a dollar a month makes a really big difference at the moment to just help that I can pay James Fosdyke to do all the original art and podcast Mike to put all this together, particularly a bigger workload for Mike, uh, considering that I'm doing all these interviews in different places and then he gets the audio and he mixes it all together so it feels like we're in the same room. So uh, he's earning every cent that he earns at the moment. Uh, Podcast Mike doing a brilliant job. So uh, I'd love for those guys to be paid and I'm unemployed at the moment. So uh, if you would like to support this podcast, patreon.com slash philosophy. I mentioned that I logged on and I saw that message. I've never logged on to the Willosophy uh, Patreon before. Uh, it's been set up for a long time, but I, I I did have the login details, but then I lost them. And Charlie set it all up in the first place anyway. And so I logged in for the first time the other day and I responded to all the messages that are there. So if you join up on Patreon and you want to send me a message about the podcast, sometimes if you send it on Facebook or Twitter or those sort of things, Instagram, I don't always see all those messages. But if you are involved in the Patreon and you signed up to the Patreon and you want to send me a message on any matter to do with the podcast, please send it. And I will keep up to date with not only reading all those messages, but replying to them all. And I'm going to uh, create some extra special content content for Patreon because, well, Patreon is just very important to me at the moment in a financial sense to keep doing this podcast. And I thought the best way to encourage more people to go to the Patreon was to you know, provide some original content for the Patreon subscribers. So I've got a couple of ideas of what form that might take. It might take a bunch of different forms. What I will tell you is 
I'm not going to do that thing where, you know, for $10 you get this and for $20 you get this and for $50 you get this because I appreciate that people subscribe and I understand that you probably subscribe at the amount that you can afford. But if you care enough to subscribe, you should have access to all the extra content. So if you sign up for a dollar a month, if you sign up for $50 a month, you are still going to get all the same content, all the same bonus content that I'm putting up on the Patreon page. I don't have any shows to plug, obviously, uh, because everything has been cancelled. So uh, you can listen to this podcast as you are doing right now. Thank you very much for doing that. But I have three other podcasts. One is called TOEFOP. It's my original podcast I do with Charlie Clawson. We have been doing that for 10 years. Uh, it is nonsense. It is just stupid conversations about stupid things. But uh, some people do enjoy it and we certainly enjoy doing it. So if you want to check that out, it's called Tofop. And then I have one called Fofop, which was a spinoff of Tofop that I do with other comedians, guest Charlies. And that has started again. Uh, that is one result of the pandemic and me having some free time on my hands. Uh, Fofop is back. Both of those podcasts, Tofop and Fofop, are both approaching 300 episodes. So there's a huge amount of back catalogue. If you enjoy the new episodes, go back and check out some of the old episodes. Just don't start with the old episodes. Always start with the new episodes and work your way back and stop when you don't like it anymore. That's my advice. And I also have an AFL podcast with Charlie uh, called Two Guys, One Cup, an AFL podcast. And uh, we sometimes talk about football, but we talk about all sorts of nonsense around football. And we often get feedback as the sort of podcast that you can really enjoy, even if you don't enjoy football. In fact, it's probably an infuriating podcast to listen to if you really enjoy football because we get so much wrong all the time. But that is also intermittently going at the moment while the AFL season is not on, but we are doing a new episode this week so if that sounds good to you go and check that out if you cannot afford to sign up to the patreon i understand that these are tough times uh you can help in other ways if you would like to support you can um give this uh, rating on whatever app you listen to it uh, you can share it around you can tell somebody about an episode that they might like uh you can send a nice comment on twitter or facebook or instagram you know sometimes if i see those things it gives me an opportunity to retweet them and let other people know about the podcast so any of those things help uh and this is the one that i really do recommend if you like someone on the podcast just tell them you don't always have to tell me you know, uh, but I do love that, um, you know, if a guest has said something on this podcast that you really responded to, make sure you let them know and that you heard them on the podcast and you enjoyed the conversation because that also encourages more people to want to come back and have another chat. And I think I'm getting a lot out of these return conversations. Um, it's not something, you know, well, I, I had done some return conversations anyway, but I wasn't planning on doing such a widespread amount of return conversations and because these seem to be going quite well and and people seem to be enjoying these check-ins i also have a couple of uh, episodes still up my sleeve that i recorded pre-pandemic uh so i might release those uh in the next couple of weeks as bonus episodes so you might get some extra content so there you go good excuse to sign up to the patreon you're getting some extra content i'm going to put up some bonus episodes here uh and uh thank you very much for listening to the podcast all right i hope you enjoy this one more narrowly Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And, uh, well, joining me, this is my series of returning guests. And uh, basically to qualify for this new series of Philosophy, two things you have to have. You have to be a previous guest on this podcast that I enjoy talking to. 
and you have to have your own equipment so you can record it at your end so it doesn't sound like shit. And I'm pleased to say that today's guest on the show easily ticks both of those boxes. Uh, she has her own podcast, uh, which is excellent. If you like this podcast, you would absolutely love Ordinarily Speaking, uh, which is kind of, in a lot of ways, a bit like philosophy around sports people looking at a particular time or incident or moment in their life that was particularly uh, important or traumatic or challenging and it's incredibly compelling and the intimacy of it is incredible so oh, this is how I start the podcast I ask who you are but everybody knows who you are there was a picture of you on this podcast and your name is on the podcast but that is the convention so who are you well first of all thanks for having me um I, I actually I was flattered to be originally asked on philosophy and I was I was even more flattered to be asked back but now that I know that it's only because I have my own zoom podcasting equipment it doesn't mean quite as much but um not only narrowly but I'm oh, sorry I didn't I, again people know who it is it's narrowly narrowly <laughs> But I, um, here's what I was going to say is, it's not the only qualification. It is just something that is that extra push that gets you across the line. <laughs> I take it. I, I, honestly, in times of ISO, I'll take any reason to have a conversation with someone who's interesting at the moment. So whatever it took to get me on board, I'll take it. But um, who am I? Uh, well, since the last time that I was on your podcast, I've pretty much lost all of my jobs. So I'm pretty much... <laughs> I'm still uh, consider myself a, a sports broadcaster, but yeah, life has taken a very different turn since the last time I was on your show. Well, it's okay, Narely, because I, like you, uh, I'm, I'm completely unemployed. I am an unemployed stand-up comedian. Finally, my parents' nightmare has come true that I would be a mid-40s unemployed stand-up comedian. Now, it took a global pandemic to bring me down, but it did bring me down. Have they enjoyed saying I told you so? Uh, they The other day, they actually offered to lend me some money and I was like so it's so nice of them you know they have an emergency fund but you know uh, I, I, the one thing I've been proud of for the last sort of 25 years is that I haven't had to ask my parents for money that was kind yeah. of the judgment the baseline that I was judging my career and my choices on where I was like well if I make good choices bad choices whatever the choices I make as long as I don't have to ask my parents for money and so <laughs> My greatest victory, if I can get through this time without having to ask my parents for some money, I'll be happy, I think. I like it. You know, it's funny because throughout this this time, I've uh, I've actually realised that I would quite happily be a trust fund baby. <laughs> I don't think I need to go back to working. I could so, as long as we didn't have all the restrictions all the time, I could so easily just fill in every day without working. If only money wasn't an issue. Okay, so this is a good place to start because... Obviously, we understand that um, you know these times are incredibly challenging for people, and there are various people at various rungs of our society that it is much harder for. But just on that basic level, with all that said, tell me what it is that this time has revealed to you about yourself. Um, that's that's interesting. What's it? Re- I think one of the things that I've always loved and um, and been pretty good at, even since I was a little tacker, was listening to people and whether that's just listen to so that they feel like they've got somebody to talk to or to actually give advice. Um, I've definitely been doing a lot of that, just talking to people and listening to them, which has been really nice um, because I think with work the way it's been, I haven't been – I try to be a really present friend when I am 
physically present, but it's really hard when you, you're not physically present and you have the same thing with your job when you travel so much, you miss a lot. And, um, and so you don't get to have those real consistent relationships with a lot of people. So it's been really nice to have those consistent conversations with people. Um, I've definitely also learned that what happened to me late last year has helped me enormously um, in losing my job at that stage has helped me enormously now because even though it means that now I'm unemployed and have no idea when the next paycheck's going to come from, um, it means that I already did a lot of soul searching and a, a lot of um, thinking about who I am and, and what my job and career means to me and how I differ as a human being to um, what I do for a living. So I think that's definitely been a really um, bizarrely, as it turns out, a really handy process to have been through before this pandemic hit. What was that process like to go through that first time? Uh, you know, out of the context of, see, I am unemployed, but it doesn't really feel like I am unemployed because everybody is unemployed. Everybody's out yeah. of work and everything is shut down. Now, my job will be shut down for a little bit longer than some other people's jobs because I can't imagine that large groups of people are going to gather together in rooms to to laugh and have a good time for much longer than people might, you know, be back out in society living day to day. So I'm looking down the barrel of not having a job for a while, but I'm confident at the end of this, there will be a job for me there waiting. When you when you lose your job, like late last year, was it late last year? Yeah. So what's what's that time like out of the context of every everybody going through it at the same time as you yeah um and and i think really publicly as well mm. which um I don't think I realised how many people gave a shit about what I did for a living until your brother says, oh, I'm just letting you know you've been trending ahead of Trump for 24 hours. And you're like, what? what you but mean? you did tell people to drink bleach. So I, that that was probably what it was. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Um, it, it, um, it, was, it was a really interesting time um, and a really challenging time and – it, it was, I mean, a lot about social media is really negative. What people talk about social media for me throughout this whole period, social media has been an absolute godsend for me because the amount of love and support I got from people who I've never met in my life was enormous. And um, it made me feel like I had contributed something of worth over the, the years of my career. And certainly you don't want to judge your existence by what people say on social media, but when they were saying things that align with your values of yourself anyway, then I think it is absolutely um, a nice thing to, to happen. And, and they were saying things that, like I say, I, I uh, value about myself. Um, and so that was very comforting in that time. Um, but there was uh, six days between, being told I'd been made redundant and um, anyone actually knowing. Um, and that week was, um, it's funny to use the word now, but at the time I described it as, as one of the most isolating weeks of my life because the only people who knew about it were the people who I told. So my immediate family, um, you know, a couple of mates. Bizarrely, uh, there was, you know, people that, it might have just happened to be a, a, a mate or a sports person who had just messaged and said, hey, how are you going? And I just decided in that particular moment I would go, oh, not great, just lost my job. <laughs> um, whereas other people, you know, just had absolutely no idea and um, and a lot of 
pretty close mates. So I was pretty arbitrary in, in who I told it. It was almost about whatever that moment was. Bizarrely enough, one, <laughs> I haven't told this, but one of the people I told was just a punter who has followed me on Twitter for so many years that I've weirdly just built up this strange friendship with. Um, and she was one of the... <laughs> One person who I just felt like I'd let her know I'd lost my job. <laughs> and she was, um, she was really, uh, she was upset on my behalf um, and, and gave me exactly the kind of response that I was, you know, hoping that she might give me. But it is hilarious that, you know, beyond my family, maybe half a dozen people sort of knew it. <laughs> Complete stranger. It was a real random selection of people. Yeah. Nobody's going to be able to trace anything. Just if you ask me at the right time, I'd tell yeah, you. Exactly. And my brother at the time was like, you can't tell randoms on Twitter. Like it'll come out. And I'm like, ah, well, it's got to come out at some point. So, um, yeah. So it wasn't her in the end. Um, so I could trust her. I, I could trust my, my, um, my judgment, but yeah, it, um, it was a really, it was a full on time. And then, um, from there, I, you know, I was in Melbourne at the time and then I, I, I did, I didn't want to be in Melbourne because Melbourne to me represented, you know, all, all the things that I was going to be missing out on and all the pressures and stuff. So I, uh, I flew to Sydney, um, and I wasn't, I wasn't ready to go home to WA yet where all of where my parents were, um, and it took me a few days to talk to my parents. And it's interesting doing um, the podcast, ordinarily speaking, because a lot of the conversations you're having really match up with the, the experience that I've had of being delisted from a footy club or, or dumped from a team or, um, you know, and that feeling of that you've let your family down, that you've you've let people that have worked hard to get you to that position down. And I wasn't, I knew my parents wholeheartedly supported me, but I wasn't ready for that emotion of my parents yet and and as we all know parents you know they they feel it more like you know the fact that your parents are offering you money now it's you know it's sweet and it's beautiful but they feel it more than anyone so I don't think I was ready to take on their emotions yet as well as my own so I um I got I got on a flight and just flew to Sydney and and basically moved in to my brother's house for a week uh with with my nephew and, um, and my sister-in-law. And, uh, that's the longest I've ever spent in anyone else's place. <laughs> it's certainly not, I'm a very independent person. So for me to actually say, I'm not okay, I'm not coping with this and I need people to be around me and I need them to be people who aren't going to judge me and aren't going to make me feel bad or, or whatever. And if I, if I snap or if I, you know, um, and they were absolutely those people. And then I also would, I was a horrible house guest from a mood point of view, but I also made sure that I cleaned the house and cooked dinners and, um, helped, <laughs> you know, put my, my nephew Jamison to bed and things like that. So that at least they couldn't get too mad with me. I bought my sister-in-law flowers on day one because I was just like, hopefully this buys me a bit of time to be a little cranky. Um, but absolutely like just having your one-year-old nephew and you fall asleep in your arms while you're feeding him is, you know, his, his bottle is the, the perfect sort of therapy at a time like that. Well, it sounds like you thought a bit about how to handle it. So instead of just 
handling it, which is what we often do, right? Like an emergency arises and what whatever we do next is whatever we do next. But it feels to me like you made a couple of key decisions and you were like, something I've I've gone through something here that is pretty traumatic and is a big thing. And I totally relate to that idea of the embarrassment even of telling your parents because you know that it's the world that you live in. Things get axed. Like, you know, when we work in our world, when you lose your job, it becomes a story. Uh, people write about it in the paper. People sometimes revel in the fact that you have lost their your job in a way that they don't really do that in other industries. Sports, absolutely. It's another thing where people can celebrate you know, the, the fact that somebody has lost their job, but you still then have to ring your parents and tell them that you've lost your job. And that's essentially just saying to you, know, the fact that you had a job was society's confidence in you that you were a capable human being. And then suddenly society has taken away that permission for you to say, I am this, I can do this. And it just feels like it doesn't take away all the things that you have done previously. And when you have time to get away from that moment, you realize that, well, this is just part of the gig. You, you get some gigs, you lose some gigs and, and that's what your life and your career is going to be. But in that moment, it feels embarrassing and you're scared because you don't have an income anymore. And so much of your identity has been tied up in what that job was and who am I without this job and what are my friendships without this job and are these people genuinely my friends or are they just my contacts? Can I be in a place, you know, there was so much in what you said that I just responded to that idea of going, well, I don't want to stay in Melbourne. Why would I want to stay in a place where I'm going to have to constantly bump into the X, you know, yeah. like particularly Melbourne, where your entire world is the world of that city and it would go on regardless. You would just be walking around in the middle of it, but not part of it. So it sounds to me that you were making some good decisions, having some knowledge of all that to go, I've got to get out of here. I've got to be in another place. I've got to be around some other people for a while. But even in the way that you were around those other people, Thinking not just of yourself. You didn't arrive on the couch a hot mess and just lay on the couch being a hot mess. You know, you arrived <laughs> with a bunch of flowers. I got yeah, really super you, drunk you, a couple of times as well. <laughs> <laughs> I danced in a boat but, that was parked on a car, on a, uh, a road at one point. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, good. But the point is you brought some flowers and did the dishes as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, it was, uh, I think... Um, I think because of what I do, I already had a lot of examples of how people dealt with that in a sporting sense um, as well. And I really did surround myself with people who understood and – for that, for, in that time for me was a lot of sports people. I, I went to people who had overcome, you know, a lot of adversity, whether it was Dale Thomas getting dumped by Carlton or Brendan Whitecross. You know, he just used to play for Hawthorne and went through multiple ACLs and, and he just happened to reach out and just say, hey, I hope, you you know, you're doing okay once it was public. And, um, you know, do you want to catch up for a beer? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. And then I would just pick their brain of how they got through it. Um, and, and through that, I, I, you know, forged a lot of closer relationships, but I think I was really strong on giving people instructions on how to deal with me because I, I knew I wasn't coping very well and it wasn't their fault. And you talk about, you know, that thing of why are people friends with me and all that. And when you, when your career is so, um, immersed in who you are and and your like I say your values your strengths all those sort of things um it, it 
I always knew that people weren't friends with me because of what I did for a living. I don't think what I do for a living is that special to be friends with me. But I realized through this that it was, you know, a lot of these people, I'm friends with them because that's how I met them. Um, but that's not why they're friends with me. We meet a lot of people in our careers. Some of them we're friends with, others, you know, you'd work with and and that's that, like any other job. And my, you know, inverted commas, you know, other friends, normal friends, um, you know, they, they're they friends with me because of who I am and not what I do. They give a shit about what I do because I care so much, but that's not why they care. And that was a really big thing for me as well. So, um, yeah, so for those six days of... And uh, when no one knew, it, it was really um, confronting and scary and, you know, grieving and whatever words you want to put to it of coming to terms with my new reality. Um, and because I'd spent 10 years of my life there, it's a really long time. I'd moved to Sydney, I was 24 years of age and, um, and I did two years in Sydney and then eight years in Melbourne. So 10 years of your life. And it's not just the job it's doing that job meant I missed every Christmas with family, every Easter, every weekend, every, you know, I missed so much and that's fine. That's not a complaint, but the, the job inherently, um, does infiltrate your, your personal life. And so, you know, last year I spent Christmas with family for the first time in, in seven years. Um, cause I was always covering the cricket. So it, it, what, it is a lot of sacrifice and love and I love my job. Don't, I don't, in no way do I want people to think I'm feeling sorry for myself, but it, it's just an example of the sort of the intertwined nature of your career and, and your personal life. So I think when it, when it became public, I was very scared obviously of what people would say and, you know, all, all those sorts of things. Um, and then, and then I was just overwhelmed because when it became public, it was like, just just relentless like support which sounds a bit of an an odd juxtaposition but I was almost I I couldn't um look at my phone because the amount of phone calls and and messages and tweets and everything that was coming through was actually just was overwhelming um in itself um but it, it was amazing um, and I thought I, I got to a point where I was okay and it was, you know, when it was made public and I was with a mate in a bar and then, you know, my brother tweeted something about the only thing I'm more proud of my sister for the last 10 years is the way that she's handled the last week. And then I was like, oh, you know, he got going yeah. again. But I think it was just a matter of waves and um, some, you know, you, you got you, you went okay some days and then other days it was suck again. And, um, and I think I was just really patient with myself and, and I got some help from a bloke called, um, Ben Crow, who's helped Richmond out with their premierships and, um, and Ash Barty and, um, used to do a lot of stuff at Nike as well. And, um, he was really uh, supportive of me and, um, and I'll, you know, never forget his support through that as well. And we sort of did a session together of a few hours and I sort of, you know, told him, you know, life journey kind of stuff. And, um, and at the end of it, he, he said to me, um, you know, he gave me a book 
to read, which was the courage to be disliked, which was really helpful, but a couple of other things as well. But I was almost gearing up for this feedback and, you know, in, in, in the line of work that we both do, you get used to, and I guess everyone in every job, but you get used to feedback and, and often um, critical and public feedback. And at the end of the chat, he, um, the session, he, he sort of went to say something to me and I was sort of geared up for real criticism of these are the things that you've done wrong. And this is what, you know, I was sort of, you know, all right, come at me, I can take it. And this is a few weeks after the the news. And, um, and he just looked at me and he said, your number one thing that you need to do is to be kinder to yourself. And it was such a moment for me because I was so ready for him to, to be critical. And when he said that it was, it was almost like I just, I, I exhaled um, because having somebody who is so wise in so many, you know, mindfulness and, and mental health and, and has seen so many people, um, you know, at a high performance kind of um, role to say that to me, it, it was almost like giving myself permission to, to do that. Cause I think, you know, when you're in a competitive environment or, um, yeah, it's it, it sometimes you you do when you're ambitious or whatever it is. And it was just really nice to be given that permission from somebody who I respected. And then I think that sort of started a, a bit of a, a time of, um, of healing without sounding like a complete wanker, <laughs> but on, on back on the, the, the word redundant though, oh, this, it's, um, this is, this is a safe, safe space to sound like a complete wanker. You know, that, <laughs> the, the word redundant though, going back to what you were saying, it, it absolutely makes you feel redundant. <laughs> just like, yep. It is that idea of how we value worth though. Also, isn't it about contributing to society? And at the time we're going through right now, we're all reevaluating what that actually means. What is an essential service and what is not an essential service? Like who are the people that need to be supported? The ones who fall through the cracks and need extra attention and extra help. Like the times we're going through right now are actually revealing how ridiculous all that idea of feeling redundant just because you're in between jobs or life opportunities. It's ridiculous that you should feel that way, but our society is so geared up to the idea that, you know, you, a lot of your value comes through your contribution that you make to society through employment rather than, you know, other contributions that you, you know, make to society that are equally important. But I want to back back to, um, well, a couple of things. Well, firstly, kindness, because I you strike me as being a kind person and certainly on your podcast, ordinarily speaking, <laughs> very good podcast, uh, very good pun name. Very proud of you. <laughs> so, Thanks for your help on that one as well. The, I did meet with you for coffee before I set it all up and you were a great help, so I appreciate that. So part of what I enjoyed and enjoy about it is you, you really are able to get intimacy from people who have not previously necessarily told the stories that they're telling on your podcast and have never felt in a safe space. And it's not like this podcast where I'll fluff around for 60% of it just to get to the juicy <laughs> stuff. You start, you just dive straight into the juicy stuff and then Mate. it's all about the juicy stuff. <laughs> and part of the reason I think that they give you permission to do that is that you have treated them with kindness. You are a kind person. It is in your nature to be the sort of person that other people are willing to share so much of themselves knowing that they will be supported through that story. So 
is it a juxtaposition and talk to me about the juxtaposition that you are a person who is instinctively kind to other people but you find it harder to extend that same level of kindness to yourself um thank you for saying all those nice things um yeah it's interesting I don't think I've ever thought about it I know that my my approach and we may have spoken about this in the first episode but my approach to journalism was always human being first journalist second human being first sports person second so there are stories I never felt comfortable going with or you know there are things that I've known or you know sports people trust me and know I'm I'm not you know I'm not going to dob them in or whatever and and in many ways that makes me a really crappy journalist because I don't really have the balls to you know, to, to do that. But at the same time, it means that playing the longer game that I always wanted to be somebody that, um, that when they were ready to tell their stories that they would trust me to tell them. And the whole premise of this podcast is that these are people who are now ready to talk about it because rather than being in the midst of it, they're out the other end. And so it's not just a podcast about what you went through, but also how did you get through it? Um, so I've always empathized with people with that. And I think going through this experience has definitely made me empathize even, even more with that. And I also think it makes them more open to talking to me because they know that I know (laughs) what a lot of these feelings and experiences are. Um, I definitely think when you're in an environment where only a few people get to, to do what what we do and 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 also in the age of social media where people in the public compare people a lot more than maybe they used to um I think people naturally are harder on themselves um and it's you know whether that's from a physical point of view or or an emotional point of view I think we always see things within ourselves that we would never dream of even noticing, let alone pointing out about somebody else, whether it's, you know, somebody walking past on the beach or whatever it is. If you walked past yourself, I bet you would say way more critical things than you would have anyone else. Um, That's just what we're like as human beings. And um, I think learning to um, acknowledge the good things about who you are and, um, is is really important and um, and that's something that I've definitely done a lot of in the last few months um, and you know and it helps when <laughs> when you feel like you're living through your own funeral <laughs> people, <laughs> people say all these nice things to you because they think that you should probably hear it and that you could probably use a little pump up or two and to all those people who have done that I absolutely needed it and I appreciate that that they uh, went out of their way to, to say those nice things but I think um at a time like this in in ISO it's definitely a time where like I live by myself so I I'm I'm single I don't have kids um we've touched on the fact I'm unemployed which by the way I was I was actually had some really good things lined up before the world completely capitulated like the Indian Premier League and things like this but um but I live by myself. So, you know, this is, has been five weeks of being completely and totally on, on my own outside of walking f- with friends and stuff. And I think it is absolutely a time where I'm grateful that for the most part, I like who I am. I, I um, am, am proud of 
you know, who I am. And, and I think it would be a really challenging time if, if you couldn't look yourself in the eye in the mirror and be okay with who you are. Um, and I realized a couple of days ago that, cause my headspace is actually really good right now, other than being a little lonely and stuff from time to time, I'm actually really quite in, not enjoying it. That's too strong a word, but I'm not minding it. And I think one of the reasons is because I'm spending so much time connecting with friends and stuff, but also I haven't spent a single second of the last five weeks talking or interacting with anyone that I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So every single interaction has been with people that that I like and that like me and that's such a really nice way to live because in so many facets of life, you, you know, you're surrounded by people that, you know, either don't like you or, um, or you maybe just don't, you know, necessarily get along like a house on fire. But in a time like this, you, you're literally only spending time with people who, um, who you like, and that's a pretty positive way to spend a month and a half. So, yeah, it's well, not the worst. So how much of that lesson then do we take back into life when it returns to, you know, uh, quotation marks normal? Because surely if we're learning these lessons, and I certainly am, like I I won't say that I'm enjoying it either because, you know, I had great plans to, you know, tour some stand-up and do some things I was really excited about. However, on the flip side of that, the idea of being at home, you know, I've been settling into a new place to live and us being able to just do everything together and, you know, um, you know, just set everything up together, be in a space and cook and, you know, like do my exercise at home and just fiddle around on my podcast and the things that I'm passionate about, but not things where, like you said, you have to interact with other people, you know, people that you wouldn't necessarily have to interact with. And so much of it is so pleasing that I will be disappointed in myself if I rush straight back into everything being like it was before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, like I've got a cheat sheet up on my mirror in my lounge room that says stay positive, check in with others, um, don't look too far ahead and breathe. Um, and I think all of those things are pretty good life <laughs> sort of points anyway. Um, but I, I think going back to, cause so much of what I'm learning now is what I already started learning, you know, six months ago. And I learned about a thing called post-traumatic growth. So we have, you know, um, post-traumatic stress. And then there's this thing that people talk about that's post-traumatic growth, which is actually growing and learning, um, from the hardest moments in our lives. Uh, so, you know, I like that could be going through a tragedy when, when you're younger. And I, I think back, we lost a couple of mates in, in car crashes when, when we were 16 in, in separate car crashes. And, um, you know, and it still sticks with me. And, and one of those mates bobbed up in my, my dream, like 17 years on the other night. And, and it still sticks with me vividly. But I know that having gone through that experience, all of us as a group were more compassionate, people um through that experience so that would be an example of post-traumatic growth and I think a lot of what we're all going through right now will absolutely be another example of that that people as as I've put it um in the last six months setbacks breed empathy um we experience setbacks in our lives and it makes us more compassionate more understanding 
to other people. And growing up in a country town, I, I speak of those those mates that that passed. And um, the first one, I went into the news agency and I, I went and bought a book that um, I wanted all the students um, and his mates to write memories and messages that we could give his parents. Um, and I took it to the the counter at the news agency and, and the woman was like, oh, yeah, I, I don't want your money. It's all good. And I remember walking out of the, the shop and saying to my mum, I don't know how people do this in cities because everyone knew in our country town, everyone knew what we were all going through. There was, you know, none of those bullshit smiles. It's not that bad. You know, all those crappy moments when people don't know what you're going through. And I think what I've noticed in this situation is that it's the closest thing that will get to the globe being a country town that everyone understands what everyone else is going through and everyone is impacted by varying degrees of course there are people going through much worse situations than what I am right now Um, but everyone is impacted so whether it's going and getting a coffee at your local coffee shop the conversation is more meaningful you get straight to the how are you going you know is business been okay are you coping with a complete stranger and I think that's a pretty amazing um, you know upside to going through this experience and and I hope that through the other end of it whilst yes it, it is incredibly traumatic for a lot of people um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about mental health and, and you know, that the mental health toll will be greater than, than any other. But I also look on the other side of it that I have actually got some really close friends who for the first time are actually acknowledging that they've been dealing with stuff, but they would just, you know, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And for the first time, they're actually having to confront these things. And whether that means going on antidepressants or, or just asking for help or admitting they drink too much or whatever it is, for, for the first time, they're actually admitting it instead of just pushing it to the side. And I think there are going to be so many of those people that that actually get to work through some stuff during this time that they never would have otherwise made time for. And, and as a result, they'll become better parents, better friends, better partners, just better people, um, and hopefully also learn to, to be kinder to themselves. So... What's the fear about what we're going through right now? What's your biggest fear about what's going on? Um, For me, it is I don't know when I'll earn money again and I'm – I'm grateful that I, uh, I've been really smart with my money over the years. So I'm, I'm okay. Um, but I don't know when the next sort of paycheck comes from. And also from my, um, career point of view, I don't know what live sport will look like when it comes back. And when it does come back, whether there'll be money in it to support all the people that it supported previously. So for me, the anxiety that I get is, will my career come back? If it comes back, what does it look like? Um, once again, I can't control that though. There is nothing that I can do right now that, that will change that or impact that. So for the most part, I'm really just trying to, you know, acknowledge the feeling, move on. Um, because I think for someone like me, I've put so much effort and energy and pressure on myself for so many years to do what I love to do. And I love my job, you know, I love it so much um, that I think to actually have this enforced break um, 
where, you know, because I, I love to travel, I love to see my family, all those sorts of things. Every time I've had a break, I've, I've still been going a million miles an hour because um, that's sort of my nature. Whereas to have this enforced break where I get up, I go for a walk, um, you know, I do some stuff on the podcast, I read some books, I have a coffee, I cook my own meals, um, you know, have too many red wines, go to sleep at a reasonable hour, wake up and go again. Um it's actually I'm trying to look at it as a as an opportunity and for me it's a time where I can actually let myself have a break without feeling guilty about it without putting pressure on myself that I'm not doing more why aren't you doing this why aren't you doing that I can't do anything right now I can't control what's going to happen so it is a real lesson to relinquish control um, focus on what you can do and do well and and then um, cope with whatever is the other the other side of it because none of us know and none of us the world is not going to be the same and none of us know so we all just need to to get through it together and then at the other end go okay this is what we're dealing with now I have a bit of control back and this is how I'm going to um, propel myself forward in that new space work aside what's the biggest thing that you miss that I miss I I mean, bizarrely, because I, I live away from my family, so I would often go a few months without seeing them anyway. I think, though, that the first day of ISO after that, you know, Scott Morrison press conference where he, he dropped six months for the first time in, in a pretty um, sort of blasé kind of way that I was like, what, wait, six months, that when I knew the borders were about to close on the Tuesday night, I woke up on the Monday morning and I had this childlike desire to get home. I, I woke up and I, I kind of, and it's the only time I've cried through this this um, period, but I woke up and I, I just kind of cried and, and I, I wanted my mum, which sounds ridiculous, but I had this sudden urge to get on a flight and pay the $1,500 or whatever it was just to get back to Perth. Um to, to get back to my family because I didn't want to be stuck by myself in my apartment all by myself with no family close by, no connection. And that terrified me. And I, I, my nieces and nephews are all quite young and it, it scared me that I wasn't going to see them. My, my best mate, who's practically my sister, is about to have a baby and I had plans to be there for her, you know, either during the birth or just after. And, and the idea of not meeting that baby until you know, they were six months, a year old, whatever it was, terrified me. Um, yeah, like I say, I've always been a pretty independent person, but the, for the first time in my life, like being on my own terrified me. Um, and and then, you know, I called my mum and, and, and chatted with her. And look, I, I basically just decided, I think like a lot of people, that the right thing to do here was to do the right thing by everyone. And I figured if everyone in my position upped and went back to where they came from, um, you know, that would put the country in a far worse position. So I decided that the best thing for me to do was to stay put um, and particularly given my parents, um, you know, are in that age group in, you know, well into their 60s that moving in with them was was not going to, you know, be a helpful thing. And also beyond the, you know, the emotion of the shock of the situation, living with my parents was not going to be a helpful thing at any point in time for either them or me. I moved out at 17, moving back in at 34 would not be a good thing to do. 17 um, years in, 17 years out, 17 
17 years in. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, so that was that has been the the most challenging thing for me, no question. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and then and then you you're feeling a little lonely for the first time in your life, and then you go for a walk and hear about other people's <laughs> problems and how many arguments they're having with their partners or whatever, and you're like, yeah, being on your own isn't so bad after <laughs> all. <laughs> But like I said, everyone's impacted to varying degrees and I think everyone wants what the other person doesn't have. So people with kids and jobs want to be unemployed and child-free and people unemployed and child-free would give anything to, you know, hug their niece and nephews. So uh, is, what, what do you think sport is going to do? Like what's your instincts about how what we're going through right now is going to change sport in the short term and then maybe even in the longer term? I think it's been a great leveler for everyone and and for sports people in particular um, to handle this situation because it is a situation that they've never, you know, been confronted with before. And sports people, I always say that, you know, a 25-year-old bloke um, who's a footy player in many ways is far more mature and advanced than a 35-year-old businessman because they've had to deal with scrutiny and public pressure and expectation um, you know, that is just almost unrivaled for that sort of, you know, job, I guess. And, um, but in, in many other ways, they're, they're still really immature because they've been told what to do. They've always had an enormous amount of support around them. And even in the off season, they've, you know, they know when they're expected to be back. They know they're expected to be in a certain shape. They know that they're, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, could bob up at any moment. Whereas now it's the first time that they've kind of been left to their own devices and not been able to have that support network around them. Um, obviously, that you know, clubs are still checking in and stuff, but it, it is pretty unrivaled. So I think it's going to be really interesting. And even when footy does come back, what the quality will be um, for, for the first few weeks. I think sport more generally, I think it's going to be a long time until we see live crowds back in, in sporting arenas. And I think that's really sad because it's so much of, of sport is the passion. Um, the upside I think will be that um, hopefully it, it comes back to its roots a little bit. Um, I think professional sports probably gotten a little bit too far removed um, so from the internal point of view of clubs, hopefully they, they remember, um, just how important fans are, how important just the love of the game is. Um, and I hope that fans remember, um, how, once again, how much they love the game and that the joy that it brings, it doesn't have to be just stress. It actually brings a lot of joy. And I hope that the media, um, learns from this, you know, how, how great sport is and that it doesn't need to be negative all the time and it doesn't need to be um, critical. We can just love the game and, and the news can just be what a great game. Um, so I, th- I hope the same. I hope sport, um, you know, mirrors what I was talking about with society just generally. I hope sport becomes a more compassionate, um, loving, joyful place of um, you know, I've just impre- appreciating what it brings. God, I sound like a massive wanker through this. <laughs> but there is there is an entitlement that is built into the system. And that's not like, I don't necessarily blame, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, I think there's a an element of, you know, you being told you're important and the crowds being there as to support you 
uh, and to worship you and to, you know, clap for you and these sort of things. But you kind of forget that the crowds are actually a big part of it. You know, what we're seeing right now is how important the crowds are. Yeah, and but on the flip side, I think um, crowds feel like they've paid their money and therefore they're entitled to abuse players and entitled to say whatever they want to say. And I think they're also learning that the players are just humans. And so I think from – that's what I mean when I say a great leveller. I think both sides of the fence, whether it's media fans or players, we're all learning that – we're actually all coming. We're all in the same boat right now. And um, and so, yeah, I think there's just going to be a general greater appreciation for every part of, of the game. And I think that can only be a good thing. Well, I agree with that. I think that's and good on you for putting it from everyone's perspective because you're absolutely <laughs> right. Because I think that we forgot it was just a game. You know, of yeah. all the games, and we've suddenly been reminded, oh, no, 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 it's just the game. It's just the thing we invented that we like to – it's a form of entertainment in which we play it for fun and we all get passionate about it and there's a whole business that is built around it and relies on it, but they're all people who contribute to the game. The journalists are part of the game and the crowds are part of the game and the, you know, the players in the game and the coaches in the game, you know, the administrators in the game, you know, the people who lost their jobs – at clubs, you know, often weren't the head coach. They would be the people who work in the office, you know, as part of this game, this game that provides all this, you know, opportunity as well. But it is, it's just a game. Yeah. And that's what I always say when people say, why do you love so sports so much? I say, I love, I love sports so much. But the reason why I love it is because even when it really matters, like it really, 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 really matters, it actually doesn't matter at all. And that's why we all love it. Because it's this escape. It's, you know, it's this, it's the dream. It's the, you know, we all go to sport to get away from our everyday lives. Um, you know, we, it's a big, it's a thing that we did as kids that we've turned into a business. But at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter. And I think that's what this is teaching us and what you miss about sport. I don't think people, are, you know, miss the abuse or the, the controversy or whatever. They miss the joy and the passion and the camaraderie and the mateship and the the common goal. And I think that will only be heightened through this. Have you watched the Michael Jordan documentary uh, on Netflix? Yes, The Last Dance, big fan. I um, I remember being in grade eight and doing an, an English assignment on, on this at the time. Um, so I, <laughs> I always loved the NBA and my brothers loved the NBA. So, um, yeah, for me, this is riding my hitting zone of – all right, kids, sit down. This is this is why we talk about Michael Jordan. Time for you to watch some highlights. Well, for me, I've come to a new appreciation. I love Michael Jordan at the time, like everybody did. He was the reason I was interested in basketball. But re-watching the way he played uh, in this documentary, it occurs to me that the reason that people admire him so much is he... He did both the things that we want from our sports people, which was he was ruthlessly committed to... Um, you know, being a competitor. That's, you know, his number one thing is that every time he went out on a court, no matter what the game was, he wanted to be the best player on the court and he wanted to win the game. But that did not take away from the artistry of how he performed his job. Because I was watching it with Amy, who hates sport, like does not enjoy sport at all. Like, you know, watch 
like half of the Bulldogs win the, the half of a quarter. So like <laughs> literally an eighth of the Bulldogs winning the premiership in 2016 because she knew it was a big moment for me and texted me because I was at the game. And she goes, this is really stressful. Why do you like this? <laughs> so I was at the base level, but we sat and watched the first two episodes the other night and she was riveted by it. You know, how just good he was at what he did and, you know, the story of this man. But the thing that I kept having to remind her of, because I would be playing these amazing dunks and that he would be doing, I was like, this is in a game. He doesn't get any extra points for dunking it like that. If he had just run down the court and laid it up, he still gets the exact same points. He played the game to be the best player, but also to play the game at its best. And they are the two things that I think that's all we need our sports people to aspire to. They need to want to be the best, but also play the game at its best. And when we get frustrated is when people want to be the best and their method of being the best is to make sure that no one can play the game at its best. Does that make sense? Yeah. Blame the coaches on that one. Totally agree yeah. with you. Like the AFL, you're right. The AFL coaches should watch this doco and remember that it is about entertainment and it is about the fans. And you're right because a couple of moments um, that stood out to me. One of them was, was the game in, in Paris and, you know, the fact that he still wanted to, you know, put on a show because he knew the people were there for him. And, you know, we hear so much these days about, oh, it's only an exhibition or it's only this or it's only that or it's, you know, overseas, it's too hard. I'm not going to play in the China game because it's too far. And whereas he was just always, no, nah, oh, this, is, this is for the people. And I think there was a line in there of saying, um, the there would there would always be someone in the crowd who had never seen him played live and that that was who he was playing for and I thought that was really that was cool um I can't remember who said that but but that was a cool way of, of um summarizing it and um you know I would I, I'd all, like with work I'd, I would always sort of go I, I didn't care whether it was a million people watching have you been paying attention or you know a couple of thousand people watching a specific bulletin on on, on Fox Sports News and this is no way me comparing myself to Michael Jordan by the way which I just segued into which makes me sound once again like a complete tosser but um but I, I would always sit there going the people who watched um, have given their time. So I don't care if it's a couple of thousand or a, or a million or a billion Indians watching watching Test Cricket, those people deserve the the best effort possible. And I think it's the same thing with, with you know, the elite sports people that, like you say, that it is actually your role not just to win the game but entertain people. And um, and I think that's, yeah, that's so, so true. But the other thing that I've Your responsibility to- is to win the game. But elevate the game at the same time. Yeah. Like one can't come at the expense of the other one. All, that's all I think it is. And I, I was just yep. going to say on your point of when you're talking about um, whether it's 100,000 people or, you know, a million people watching. Don't – I, I learned very early on in stand-up. I can't remember who gave me a bit, this piece of advice, but I'd like to repeat it and give a shout-out to whoever <laughs> it was. But they said there is a real tendency – that if you're doing a festival in particular, right? You had a you had a hundred people in last night and your room was full for the first time ever. And then on like Saturday night, there's another hundred people in. And then on Sunday night, there's like 15 people in. And you get angry at the 15 people who were there. Yeah. They came. 
Yeah. It's not their fault. You should do an extra special, like, you should do an extra special show for those guys. Yeah. Everybody else decided this was not a thing to do. <laughs> These guys decided it was a thing to do. You owe them the best fucking, because it turns out they're going against the crowd. Yes. That's so true. That's so true. It's such a great way of looking at it. I just, I, yeah. I've always admired people, um, and I guess it is a bit like stand-up comedy, but that those shows always differ a little bit, but I always admired stage um, actors and doing a show night after night after night. I'm like, how do you get up for it? And, you know, I'm, I'm my brother would, would say, like, it's a different crowd every night and they've paid their money to come and watch you. So you, you have to get up, you know. And I think that's such, it's such a good point that, that ultimately it's not about you, it's about the people watching. Um, and I think that is, that's the key thing to remember about all these things um, when you're in the entertainment business, whether that's news and entertainment, sport and entertainment, comedy, at the end of the day, we do have a role to, to sort of entertain. But the other thing that I, I loved about the, the last dance is there was a moment uh, where Jordan is describing the game in college. It was it high school or college? I can't remember now um, where he, he nails the shot. Um, at the end of the game to win and, and he says that was the moment that I, you know, I knew I had something special or that I, I had that, I, that's the moment that I had this belief. And I'm just like, wow, to have that sort of awareness that early on in his career of how good he could be and his importance, I just, that that's, you know, and I remember somebody, I think it was Simon Kadich said to me about Steve Smith when he really got going he said, Steve, Steve Smith used to be special. Now he knows he's special. Right. And that's the moment where everything changes. And the thing for Jordan is it changed in a, you know, in a college game, um, which so we had a lot of time to really elevate from that point. But, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a big difference in, in so many people's lives of knowing, you know, when the moment that you realize, you know, that you believe um, what everyone's saying. I mean, how many people do you think are held back by the fact that, and you see it in sport all the time. I think people who have all the skills to be something amazing, but are held back by the idea that they don't believe that they are something amazing. Oh, uh, uh, all the time. I mean, especially in a sport like, like Aussie rules because in basketball there's five on the court so you are a big portion of of what goes down and so if you have a you know he makes the the comparison to the to the Cubs of rebuilding and stuff and and a lot of Aussie rules people have picked up on that you know the the rebuild and but it is a bit different in footy because you can have a, a Nat Fife, for Dustin Martin and Marcus Bontempelli in your team but if the rest of them are crap you know it's it's one of of 22 uh, and one of 18 on the, on the field. It's not one of five. Um, and you can't play really a hundred percent minutes in, in footy the way that it's played these days. So I think it is, it, it is an interesting sort of concept, but, but just by the sheer nature of footy, it is very much team first. And um, you know, and you do get those, those players who want to, you know, give off the assist, whether it's a Dusty Martin or, you know, Tom Hawkins did one last year, you know, that, that gimme sort of moment instead of taking the moment themselves because they want to be seen as a team player and be selfless. And I think that Americanism of owning the moment, owning who you are, 
um, and over celebrating and strutting like a peacock and, um, and just that self belief. And, um, I, I, I'm sometimes, I, I'm a bit envious of what, what the Americans have. Cause I think it's great here that, that people tend to be a little more grounded, but I think it's pretty cool when you get, you know, a LeBron James saying, I am, I am the greatest, you know, well, I am the best right now. Sorry, not the greatest, but you know, I am the best player. Like that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, so how did the feedback you got? Cause you, you spoke about the fact that all these strangers went out of their way to, or not just strangers, yeah, friends and colleagues, you know, went out of their way to say nice yeah. things to you, you know, say things that they, but you hope that they do. <laughs> Yes, but often they will then pick a specific thing to tell you about it, you know, in a way that they wouldn't necessarily in the day to day when they were, you know, just saying that they loved you or, you know, it was yeah, good to catch true. up with you or whatever. They will say, hey, this is why you're really good at your job. And, you know, I really love this thing that you did. And I really love that. I bet there was a lot of people just reminding you of things that you had done and achieved and and in a way that they probably wouldn't have ordinarily. And as you said, a whole bunch of complete strangers suddenly talking about what it was they admired about what you did in a way that you probably never would have got that feedback other than losing your job. Yeah, like living you know, through like, your own funeral. Right. But that, the point being is that it only happens because you lost your job. Yeah. So in that moment, you're, you're in, a, in, in a really surreal situation because the evidence that you're good at your job has gone away. That's what you normally take as the evidence. The fact that you have the job, you go, well... Like, you know, this dickhead doesn't think I'm funny, but people keep employing me, so I guess I must be funny. I don't know. I don't know if I'm funny or not, but, like, the evidence says that I am funny because people keep giving me jobs. But if they don't give me jobs, if they stop coming to my show, I assume in my head I wouldn't still think that I was as funny. So if you then suddenly have all these people coming out of the woodwork to say, no, 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 you're amazing, and here's this great joke that you did back then will and i i've been coming to your show all these years and this is what i loved about you and I, i'm devastated that i won't be able to come to your thing like there were people during the comedy festival who were tweeting me on the night that they were coming to the show just saying this would have been like our 15th year in a row or this would have been blah 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 and they probably didn't put much thought into that but it really helped me through that time where i was missing doing something that i'd done for 25 years in a row so yeah like, you know, hearing those things was a really lovely thing. So you're at this low point, but then you get all this positive affirmation. Does knowing that there are so many people who really love what you do give you more confidence to be even more you going back into it? Absolutely. As I said at the start, that the number of, like you say, friends and, and colleagues, I was blown away by the number of, of colleagues Um that, that got in touch. And, and as you say, not, not just, um, I hope you're okay checking in on you, but like really long, heartfelt, beautiful messages that, you know, we just, yeah, blew me away. And, um, and one of the ways that I got through it was actually, you know, literally copying and pasting a lot of these sort of messages and putting them all on one page so that when I was feeling really low, I could go back to that as, as reassurance. And now, and, and also part of doing the podcast was um, wanting to, or feeling almost a little bit like I owed those people that they loved what I brought to the table and therefore I need to keep going because they appreciated it. 
Um, and then that same getting the, for example, the, you know, doing the, the podcast that I'm doing at the moment, the, the feedback that I, because of the sheer nature of, you know, that it is quite deep and meaningful and full on content that the people contacting me saying, Hey, this has improved my relationship with my mom. Hey, this is how I feel. And, um, you know, and it, it's helped me enormously, you know, those sort of messages, um, mean the world and it makes you feel like what you're doing actually does make a difference to those, those people. So feedback has always, like I say, you don't want to, you don't want to rely on what people think of you and the, whether they like you or not. Um, but having, if, if it does align with your values, then I think it is a good thing because it's an indicator of, of that you're on the right track when the greatest indicator was, was gone. Okay. So ordinarily speaking, uh, I'm going to ask you, feel, feel free to not answer some of these questions. If, um, these are things that you just don't want out in the public domain, because sometimes people don't want people to know how the cake is baked. You know, it takes away from the magic of what the cake is. So feel free to, you know, not answer these questions if you feel like that. But I'm fascinated by your process because you jump straight into the big thing. So are you doing research beforehand to find out what that thing is? Are you approaching somebody and asking them the question, is there something specifically that you want to talk about? Or is it more organic than that? Like what's, what's your process? Are you willing to reveal that? Is that okay to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my process is that to start with, I mean, I mean, just to start with, I met with people like you and Mark Howard and people who had really, really um, successful podcasts just to go, hey, what do I do? What equipment do I need? What's What makes it successful? What, you know, should I do it? You guys know me, should I do it? Um, and yeah, so from that point of view, that was sort of when I started honing in really on, on why I wanted to do it and what I actually wanted to do. Because obviously with any creative process, you start with a few different ideas. And I wanted to do something that um, was, was specific to because I think the beauty of podcasts is that you get to do what you want to do and and there's no you don't need to run it past the bosses and you don't need to make sure it, it, you know if as long as you're not doing it to make money if you're doing it to make money it's a bit different but if you <laughs> if you're doing it because yeah and that's a key thing and that, that's one of the first things that Howie said to me is what's your motivation here <laughs> and my motivation was I want to do something that I'm passionate about that makes a difference um to, to people who listen. And, um, if I make money, then that's a bonus, but it's not why I want to do it. I've done a lot of stuff that, you know, I've got, I've got jobs that make money. This is my passion project. This is my heart and soul. Um, and, and so it gives the freedom to be able to have conversations for as long as you want to have to do subjects that you want to cover. Um, and the way that I, I sort of, um, narrowed it down is, is, a little bit on what we've we've touched on that over the course of my career, I feel like the way that sport is covered has become too negative and too um, judgmental, and I wanted it to be more compassionate and relatable. And I've because I've been doing it for fifteen years, I've got a lot of friendships built over that time where I know a lot of what they've been through and their backstories and particularly with sports like cricket where you're essentially on the road with them. So you, 
you know, over over Christmas and, and the summer, you're in the same hotels, the same flights, the same net sessions. You get to know these guys pretty well, the ones that you get along with. So um, over the, the course of the, the journey, I sort of got to know um, people pretty well and all of a sudden, you know, these days with podcasting and technology, you can do it on your own, whereas you couldn't, there was no way of doing it without a big media company, you know, 20 years ago. So um, I decided to, that I would, I would have the conversations that I wanted to have in the way that I wanted to have them. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I um, came to celebrating resilience in sport and the human stories behind the athletes. And I reached out to athletes who I had, um, you know, friendships or relationships with that I knew that they would trust me. And, you know, some say yes and some say no. Um, and I, saw, I started with Adam Trelaw from Collingwood Football Club um, and he'd shared a fair chunk of his story um, publicly before but certainly went into a lot greater detail. But I think one of the main um, motivations for me was that context and nuance has been completely lost in so much of of um, sports coverage and context is what what gives you the understanding so people just hear the situation and then they judge people and they don't necessarily know what's what's led up to that point and what else is going on in that person's life whereas that's what context is and then nuance um, you know it's so important and you know, you say, oh, Adam Trelaw is having a baby. Oh, big deal. Who cares? You know, it's just football having a baby. When you know that he grew up in, in a household that was government housing, his dad left when he was just a baby, that he, you know, he couldn't afford food a lot of the time and clothes and felt like he never had that father figure and now he's going to have a baby and that means to him that he, you know, he gets an opportunity to give love and care and all these things that he felt like he missed out on. All of a sudden, the, you know, the footballer having a baby has so much more meaning to it and to hear him get emotional talking about it is really special and I think it changes the stereotype of what a footballer is, what a sports person is. And people f- suddenly find it relatable and um, and can put themselves so s- in his shoes. I listened to that um, podcast last. So I, I, I listened to them all. Oh, thanks. Um, but I listened to that one last. And the reason that I listened to that one last was I thought that I knew what that story was. Yeah. I was much more interested in the other stories. Yeah. But it is so much more than the, even the amount, even the amount that he has put on the record it is that detail and that nuance because sometimes I think that, you know, even in just telling these stories of his life and, I, you know, I so related to them in many ways, not because I was in that individual situation at all, but because he's talking about these football teams that he went away and played with. And I played like, you know, I was in that, you know, big country squad that he talks about and he's telling these stories of having no clothes to wear, but the that you had to have money to go to the meals and these sort of things. And I'm like, I remember having the money to go to the meals and never even when you're in those situations thinking about the you know the kid who doesn't have the money to go to the meals yep. and is not only at this camp trying to be a footballer but is dealing with all these other things as well and then when he starts talking about you know what he feels like he misses out on by not having a father and what that means in the way that he is going to be a father was it, it's incredible and as you said you know, you think of Adam Trelaw and you go, oh, what do I think about Adam Trelaw? He's like, he's a good footballer. Maybe his like disposal isn't as good as his ball. 
collecting like he went he had a choice to go to richmond and collingwood and he went to collingwood and people thought that was stupid i can't really think about much else you know like that's kind of what i know about adam trelaw and then i listen to this podcast and i feel just so connected to him as a human being and when i watch him do what he does now i understand it and will appreciate on a level that i never would have beforehand so that interview in turn actually contributes to me enjoying watch watching him play the game more yeah thank you and that, and that's and that's what i mean by being like relatable and i think they all of the the guests i think you asked me about my process i just want to give them a safe space and yep. Um, I think they get that both through knowing me through if they don't know me, having heard the podcast with other people, um, I give them permission before every podcast. I say, if you, if I ask you a question, you don't want to answer, please just let me know. Um, and, and you know, you don't answer it or we can take it out later. Um, also the fact that like I, I record it and I edit it and I, do it all myself so I can genuinely say to people I'm the only person who will hear the raw copy of this so if something happens that you don't want in it you let me know and it's very rare that that happens and and still in my entire career I've never had somebody say I don't want to answer that but if you give them the permission it's amazing how much safer they they feel um and I think these these guys are I genuinely want like the reason why they're doing this is they genuinely want to help people. And so they find it cathartic themselves, but you take Peter Siddle, for example, um, former test cricketer. And I've been mates with him for a really long time. And I, I knew he drank too much back in the day. I didn't know to, to the extent that it was. And and in his episode for the first time, he admits that he he's an alcoholic and that's why he stopped drinking. And, um, and, and he really goes into to depths of detail that I I was shocked by even being really good mates with him. And then I was worried because it got a when it did come out, it got a lot of traction and it was back page of the age and um, you know, it got picked up in the UK and India and and I checked in on him just to say, Hey, are you okay with with how much traction this has got? And and he wrote back, he said, It's it's great. It's, it's so good. It's, it's going to help so many people. I've got so much great feedback from people saying, you know, I've been in that position or thank you. I, I didn't, you know, have the balls to admit that I've got a problem and, but your, what you've gone through is exactly what I'm going through. And, and he was so happy about the amount of coverage it, it got because that just meant it, it was going to help more people. And, and I guess that's kind of well, what I, I think mean. I by, would argue too is like when these things come out, if they come out, even if you do an interview with the journalist to do a write-up in the newspaper or something, right, you never get to hear all of the story. Now, there will be people that only see the headlines out of your Peter Siddle podcast and never come and listen to the podcast. But at least Peter knows that if people want to go and hear it, the entire story in context, yeah, that there is a place where they can go and hear the entire story in context. I think that's that's what's great about it. Because there's still going to be the headlines. And look, I've had them out of this podcast. Occasionally things that get said on this podcast get, you know, picked up in the press. And, you know, they do their style of journalism, which is, you know, sort of clickbait headlines and those sort of things. Well, my style is not that. My style is we will have a long conversation and, you know, 
you'll reveal in that some really great things, but we'll get it with honey. We're not going to get it by you having your guard up. But I feel like with your podcast, it's a step ahead of that because it really feels like, A, because of the trust clearly they have in you and the way that you framed what you do, but you dive in the deep end with sympathy, like with empathy, right? In that they just feel like it's a place where they can just start talking and every single one of them has revealed more major headlines than a fucking newspaper journalist would break in a fucking year. Like they're big stories, but because they're not presented as sensational, this is terrible or this is great or yeah, this is an outrage or whatever, it's a long form conversation. The the level like Sid's just kept talking. And I was just like, mate, this is incredible. And thank you for doing it because clearly the story he's telling is also, I am now a very different person and this is what got me to be this person. And that is rather than telling that story in the middle of it because you've got busted drink driving or something, it's very different to look back on it when you've gone through that. And, you know, like, I mean, him talking about, you know, coming home and his partner coming back to his apartment and, you know, finding you know, someone else there yeah. and that, that wasn't probably the only time. But in the knowledge that you know that those two, two human beings worked through that and he changed as a human being and they are together and and him telling that story, to me, that is just... I mean, I, I there was a few moments during that where I was just... I really did feel grateful to Peter Siddle because I was like, this. some of this must be... You could have told 90% of this story and it still would have achieved all the things telling this story needed to achieve but you went to the hard place you went to the place of acknowledging all the shitty things that you have done that no one else really knew about you know you got away with it (laughs) (laughs) you know like everyone thought you were a good bloke everything's fine mate we all know you now we all think you're a great bloke but I felt very grateful that he had clearly got to a place where he thought no 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 it's important that I talk about this and maybe other people can learn from this yeah and and it's funny because the, the background to that one is um Anna his wife I called her the day before and um and Sid's knew I was calling her but he never actually asked her what we spoke about or anything and I said to Anna give me your version of events tell me you know if there's anything I should be asking him and she was all for him being absolutely 100% honest um because she she thought it was an important part of the story. And I think her bravery in doing that, because there's plenty of people who could have judged her for the decisions that she's made, but instead she's the hero in this story because she's helped him right. turn his life around and had the humility to go through it with him. Um, and I think it, it is interesting because when she came downstairs after we finished recording, um, it, was, it was quite a heavy feeling in the room. It, it gets you know, it gets pretty intense and it finishes on a pretty intense moment. And Anna sort of walks down and she goes, geez, right, eh? what, what's, what's been going on down here? And then Sid puts his arm around her and, um, and, the, and he's got his arm around her for a, for a few seconds. And then she goes, you're right. And then it, it's a few seconds later and then she goes, all right, that's enough of that now. And sort of swats his hand away. <laughs> and, um, She's like, geez, you know, and that continued for a few minutes afterwards where she was like, what have I missed kind of thing? Um, and so, yeah, it, it did, that one in, in particular did surprise me of he- how heavy it got and also the admissions that he made, like the drink driving stuff. Um, 
for example, and, and he even says in the moment, this isn't going to sound great, you know, and, and I was certain coming out of that that there would be a number of people um, in the public that would be critical of him and, and fair enough for those decisions and there wasn't a single person that tweeted or Instagrammed or anything there was one that said, I, I had a family member who died at the hands of a drink driver. Thank you, Peter, for saying what you've said and for changing your life. And so it was somebody who'd been through that and thanking him for raising awareness. And I thought that is so powerful because it could have so easily gone the other way that people jumped on him for his, his behavior. Um, and I think, you know, talking about context and nuance, that's the beauty of it, that people really did listen to it and walked away going, oh, all power to him, you know, instead of judging him. Well, the fact that he knew that was a shitty thing to do. Yeah. That's the point, right? That's the difference. Yeah. Is that he not only acknowledged that he did a like a, a terribly yeah, some terribly stupid things, but that he realized that he had to stop doing terribly stupid things. Yeah. And and you know, really change his life in order to do that. So cuz he again, he got away with it, yeah. right? And and you like can he hear his remorse in that, and you can hear him. He knows he got away. He like he, mm. you know, he phys- And that, that's the only problem with podcasts is you can't see them physically shaking their heads and you know in utter disbelief that he never got into more serious trouble. Interesting. Um, so what what's your plans during the pandemic? Because I imagine it's a podcast that you like to do face-to-face with people. Yeah, so much of my style, like I get teased a bit for the um, word-to-word ratio. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that That's I okay. say I'll, very little. I'll send, you, I'll send you some of my correspondence in early. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, so, so much of my uh, interview. I found the expression, fuck off, it's a free podcast. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> So much of um of my style is based on on body language and and the you know those sort of subtle looks of encouragement and um and so whilst you can do it over over FaceTime and things like that I think even just the mood of the room and um it 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 is quite dependent on that so for me I'm not sure whether it works doing it remotely hopefully in a few weeks you know restrictions are maybe lifted to the extent that we can have one on one you know, times with, with people. Um, I'd recorded all 10 of the episodes before the restrictions came about. I've got two of those left. Um, so I've got to make a decision over the next couple of weeks of whether I try and, and do it remotely or whether I, um, I just wait and just say, well, that was the first series and, um, and that'll be that. But I think particularly because the first few episodes are with people who, you know, I'd consider friends or, um, you know, colleagues, however you want to put it, uh, whereas now, you know, I'm probably more leaning on people that I don't know as well. Um, so it, it is harder to sort of connect with those those people over over technology. But I don't know, maybe I'm just making excuses for myself. But I, I think, yeah, I'll wait and see in a couple of weeks and, and see where it goes from there. Do you have an ideal guest? Is there somebody who's sort of your white whale? Yeah, there's definitely people that I, I want to talk to. Um, and most of what I am motivated by is not like the star power. It's, it's this, it's the story and, um, and the way that they tell it. Like one of my favorite episodes of the series was, um, Sabrina Duffy, who many people would never have heard mm-hmm. of her name, even though she's, she's a gun in the AFLW, um, 
but a lot of people would never have heard of her and, and she spent her entire life in, in foster care and the way that she tells her story and, and the way that she articulates it at, at the age of, of just turned 20 is is amazing. So you kind of hope, I guess with yours, it's the same thing that you've, you've done a lot of celebrities and stuff like that. But I imagine some of your favorites are probably like the doctors and the, you know, the people that the names don't necessarily bring the guests in, but the story is what holds them. Well, I, that's all in almost all of the cases, right? Yeah. Because, you know, the very, you can tell by the very nature that they're not celebrities, yeah. <laughs> that their story is interesting. That's why they're on the podcast. Yeah. It's almost your guarantee. If you take the celebrity option, you know what? They could be boring as fuck. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's the ones you haven't heard of that have the great stories. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. And, and so I guess you need a few big names to get people in and then once they're in you hope that they stay for the stories and and stay for the trust that okay the other ones are being good I'll stick around for for these ones now um but yeah I don't know I, I, I yeah I'll, I'll wait and see but it's definitely um it's definitely given me a sense of of purpose and through this time and and to be honest uh, when when the um, restrictions started, I was actually a little bit. I didn't know whether to keep going with releasing them. It felt a bit frivolous to release sports stories during this time. Um, but then it was pointed out to me by people that, um, well, first of all, that you know they needed a distraction from yeah. from coronavirus. But secondly, that because they were stories of resilience, that people were actually finding them even more useful right now. You know, people who were losing their jobs and um, and things like that. So that actually gave me a great deal of comfort to feel like I was at least contributing something that was helpful to people at a time like this because I feel at the moment I don't know about you but one of the overwhelming things that I feel right now is just a little bit useless um I know they're telling us that we're saving the world by sitting on our couches but (laughs) um yeah that that feeling of not really contributing much so this has at least made me feel like I'm I'm um, helping to to contribute in that way well it's a fantastic podcast I really do (laughs) highly recommend it to people and the thing that I would say about it is I'm not sure that you would need to know the sports people to appreciate the stories. I think that they are tales of resilience and that they are human tales of people going through an adversity of some kind. And uh, most of the stories I would say are kind of universal stories without you having to specifically know that, that player or that sport. You'll just enjoy the stories. Yeah. That's my hope. My hope is that people, um, listen to it and then, you know, come home and say to their partner, hey, you should really listen to this this podcast. You know, like I would hope that you as a sports fan go home and, and say to your partner, hey, I know you don't love footy, but you need to hear this story. Um, yeah, she, she does not listen to podcasts. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that, that sort of... Um, that's what I hope is, is that it, it ends up transcending the sort of sports side of things and just becomes really good sort of, um, human nature stories. Uh, well, thank you very much. Ordinarily speaking is the name of the podcast. I highly recommend that people check it out and, uh, thank you very much for talking to me today, Nerily. Thanks so much. You've helped me kill a couple of hours. So I, I do really appreciate that. And thanks again for all the <laughs> advice you gave me on the podcast to get it going. <laughs> thanks, mate.